Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like. I'm Danielle Van Hook from the Alden and McLean, Virginia, and I'm here today with Kevin. Kevin Maynard, Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. Gal pal Katie. Hey everyone, Katie Miller, Midland Center for the Arts. Brian. Hey, Brian Zellmer from KU Presents. Josh. Josh Benson in Marion, Illinois at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Not splitting anything. <laughs> for this week's episode, I sat down with Andre Bouchard, who's an agent, producer, and educator who focuses on sharing indigenous art and culture. Andre talks a bit in this interview about one of the biggest problems within Native culture being the erasure of Native culture. So I wanted to just kick off with a general idea of what the current um, stats were in each of the states that you all worked in. Because when you hear how many tribes are still represented in each state and the reservation, it really gives you a sense of that erasure and how widespread it is. In my state in Virginia, there's seven federally recognized tribes. 11 that are state recognized. Um, and we have two very, very small reservations. Um, so my friends from Illinois, do you know anything about the lands that you are on in there in Illinois? Well, for the record, Kevin and I are both from different Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'm from Kentucky, Illinois, and Kevin's yeah, from Iowa, Illinois. <laughs> Iowa, Illinois. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so I, I honestly have barely been able to find anything about tribal presence or what the actual tribal stuff was in Southern Illinois. The only stuff I found was in correlation to the Shawnee National Forest down here. And that's through the National Forest Service because uh, there's just no resources. Like it's so hard to find anything. Yeah. yeah. Here there's a fair amount of resources. I mean, like locally, just kind of like the historical aspects of things. I mean, like we know we sit on the, the Sac and Fox Nation um, tribes or the tribes that were in the Sac and Fox Nation. There's many tribal bands here. But I mean, since then, obviously, like they have all been driven out. I mean, there's a couple organizations that exist locally, but like no tribal offices or anything here. So we don't have a whole lot of confidence in Illinois being a big presence here, but yeah. let us know. Okay. <laughs> Illinois has zeros all around. Um, no matter if you're from Iowa, Illinois, or Kentucky, Illinois. <laughs> um, no state, no federal, um, and then, of course, no tribal land um, in Illinois. All right, Brian, what do you got? All I know is that I live on the original lands of the Lene Lenape people. But like you said, with erasure, the, the only information I have, I, I know a lot of the names of the various tribes that, that actually live in my specific region at one time. But, but I, I only know it from a colonial perspective because of the stories that are told about the forts that are there and the fur traders and so forth. And, and so, yeah, I don't really know a lot, to be quite honest. Yeah. So, again, you're in a similar boat as Illinois. And it's not your fault. PA in Illinois. It might be. Well, it's not your personal fault. It's definitely the fault of the PA in Illinoisans before you. <laughs> but you also have no federal, state recognized tribes or any tribal reservations. With the note that there are in lots of places tribal owned land, which means that the tribes had to purchase the land back. 
I'm going to pass it to Katie because I have a feeling that there's better news in Michigan. What do you got for us? So where I live and where I work with uh, here in Midland, Michigan, is on the original ancestral land of the Anishinaabe people, specifically the Saginaw Chippewa tribe. Um, And we are very, very lucky that we have an incredible cultural center only about 25 minutes from where I live. It is the Zeebwing Center of Anishinaabe Culture and Lifeways, which is a Smithsonian award-winning cultural center and museum. And I personally have visited several times and taking in the history and the culture. And I think it's an absolutely beautiful space and very lucky to have that resource, frankly, in my own backyard. And I hope more people in my community take advantage of it. Well, Katie, not only do you win this round, you also have wonderful facilities. (laughs) So I think we should all visit Pure Michigan. Um, Michigan has four state recognized tribes, 12 that are federal and 11 reservations. So that's real reserved land for native people that they did not have to purchase back. A lot of that stuff happened in treaties in like the 17 or 1800s. We're going to get into this interview with Andre Bouchard. Andre does a great job and um, I'm excited to share uh, his perspective with everyone. My name is Andre Bouchard. I am the founder and executive creative producer of Indigenous Performance Productions, a nonprofit company based in Olympia, Washington, but serving Indigenous people in the United States and um, in other countries. Um, and I am honored to be here. I really want to do the like the biographical stuff up front, but like, sure. I also just heard you say that you're serving the Indigenous community. Yeah. And so much of what I want to talk to you today about is how you're serving people like us, people yeah. like me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're really serving both. I just, I just well, want you to like take up the space that you should take up. So no, no, like that's a good question because there's intercultural work that we do, you know, because culture is the frame that we, we just carry with us through our lives and we inhabit many cultures at the same time. And so, yes, the work that we do interculturally between indigenous and non-indigenous communities is extremely important. And it's, it's really key to finding sort of the next place, the, the next steps on the path that we're going to be collectively taking. But if you look at it also, also, there's intercultural work that we do within the indigenous community because we're not a monolith. There, there are cultural barriers between reservation Indians and, and, and folk who have lived for generations off the reservation, as it were, um, or uh, not on, yeah, on off, that's... That's also another phrase that you I could unpack. And there's also, you know, the indigenous plus academic community or technology community or film community or performing arts community. There's so many different ways this uh, sort of that, that indigenous manifests. To your original point, ed- education is, is a key component of what we do to find the next level of dialogue in this country. It's certainly essential. I'm just going to start off the top by saying I'm so grateful to you that you're doing this work. I do. I would love it if you could talk a little bit about Origin Story and how you got to being the owner of um, this production company. I was born and raised on the Flathead Reservation in western Montana, um, which is home to the Confederate Salish, Kootenai, and Pondere tribes. My father was an enrolled tribal member. My mother was just a sunburnt girl from Los Angeles. My my father passed when I was very young, when I was Mm -hmm. three. There were you know, teachers in the schools, elders in the community and that sort of thing. I did grow up at a place between sort of 
my mother's sort of Los Angelian like culture, but living extremely rurally and isolated in Western Montana and, you know, the culture of my community. The reservations are almost by definition, at least in the 80s when I was growing up, very poor places, places that have challenges such as, uh, you know, violence and substance abuse and that sort of thing. You know, being a nerdy kid and bookish and that sort of thing and quiet, I, I found refuge in the connections I found through my father's culture, through art, and found a place on stage and that grew into a love for, you know, doing stage work and that sort of thing. I could never make my uh, way as a, a theater person because uh, memorizing lines just terrified me. Um, and so I ended up uh, with dances, actually, my home, uh, my artistic home. And I ended up uh, going on to get a Bachelor's of Fine Arts in Dance from the University of Montana and at the behest of my mother getting another degree that wasn't, you know, quote unquote, <laughs> not a career. I, I went ahead and did that. The 10 years after I, I graduated from college, I really tried to make it as a dance artist. Over that, that period of time, I came to realize that most of the best ideas in the world are not yours. So I found a place and a love for doing independent production. And, uh, you know, I, I ran, you know, a fringe theater here and then graduated until like running a community college theater. And then I went back to get my master's from Carnegie Mellon because I needed to learn how to grant write and I needed to learn things like finance and board development. And it, it served me well in that that particular case. And I sort of, it was like a three-year arc until I ended up founding, after graduate school, um, this company as an LLC originally. But after three years in operation, we, we transferred, transitioned into a nonprofit. And it's been pretty continuous growth. Sort of the reason why I formed this, the job I had before this was I was a program officer with Native Arts and Cultures Foundation. I saw the work they were doing and I saw the work that was being done to help Native artists, you know, have a pathway to sustainability in their art and to elevate their voices and that sort of thing. And the preponderance of services and programs out there were very much focused towards visual artists. Being a performing arts, a live performance person, I saw the need um, because there were, there was a groundswell of you know, heartbreakingly talented theater, music, dance artists, storytellers that didn't really have an avenue for sustainability. There's teaching. There wasn't a lot of understanding around the multiculturalism of the many nations that are in this country, uh, who contemporary Native people were. Many of, most of the stories told in this country are sort of told about uh, Native American people, Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian, and were told through the lens of romanticism, you know, mysticism, and vilification. Those stories were told regardless of sort of the truth and not connecting with people who were actually a part of the culture and that sort of thing. They were told as outsiders to sell movies or books or that sort of thing. Needing to find a pathway for these people, I formed this company and it was a booking agency at first and then we started ramping up over the last three years since incorporated as a nonprofit our production arm. So taking ideas uh, through, you know, pre-production, production, 
you know, documentation and then hopefully getting them on tour. But yeah, I, I started this outfit with five touring productions and now we're up to 12. We'll be probably about 14, 15 next year. And I hope to get up to around 20. We've been very successful and very well supported by a number of foundations. We continue to find more support through our, our programming partners. So I've got many more questions to ask you about the touring industry, but I'd love to get to know you a little bit more before we get in. And you talked a lot about finding refuge in your father's culture. A little bit further about your culture, what traditions you celebrate, what are your favorite foods for those traditions? What are things you've passed down to your children? It was just so important. I don't I don't want to just focus kind of on the harm that's been done to your community. No, no, I also no. yeah. really like to lift up all the beauty that I know is there. Yeah. A good friend of mine, Lindsay Bear, once told me that there's no point in, in competing in the suffering Olympics because when you win, you lose. <laughs> I do tend to focus on sort of the, 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 the opportunities for celebration. Culture... It, it, it's a bit of a soapbox of mine that the, the culture is the lens by which we live our lives. It, it governs what, you know, we eat for breakfast, how we raise our children, how we treat our elders, uh, how we speak, how we think, how we how we do everything. I live my life, hopefully, as said in, in, in many indigenous circles, you know, as my, my ancestors are watching me. And this is something I, I sort of believe in my heart, that when we leave this world, it's it's more of like the next step on our journey and that sort of thing. I try to, to live my life in a way that would make my ancestors proud of me. And this means to work in support of my community, work with a deep level of accountability to my community. Most of us belong to many, many cultures. And so I belong to a cultural community of my tribe and uh, sort of an urban native community as well. But I also belong to the performing arts community, a community of parents. And because parenting in 2023 is, you know, a moment in time that is presenting unique challenges and that sort of thing. I belong to a, a community of, of caretakers because I am caretaking for um, my mother whose health is failing and she's 80. You know, I am trying to make her as comfortable and possible. But the things I teach my children are, are things like humility and respect to your elders and accountability, um, both to yourself, but your family and your community and that sort of thing. Uh, a level of humility and self-reflection is, is something I really aspire. I think as, as parents, I think we all have these goals to, to just raise good humans yeah. that, you know, survive childhood. <laughs> So for someone who's outside of your native community, what is the best language that we can use um, to, to speak about your broad range of artists, artists in general who aren't of the same tribe? In case there's anybody wondering, I really just want to, from your perspective, kind of have an idea of what, like, what is the language that you're most comfortable using? Is it always native? I've, I've heard you say native. I've heard you say indigenous. That's a, that's a really good question. The, the naming um, when in doubt, try to find the, the, the name of their tribe and their, mm -hmm. their affiliation. And so taking people as individuals and sort of trying to understand where they're most comfortable in identifying themselves. There's a journey that that many indigenous native artists, and I, I use these terms almost interchangeably because there is sort of like in casual conversation, the need sort of like to unfortunately generalize. When in doubt, try to, you know, try to find out, try to do your homework, do your homework be be a good human being. With regards to sort of language in general, I'm on a journey with regards to that too, because there is a large amount of sort of colonial language 
and sort of patriarchal language that I strongly believe that we need to move beyond. Many of the, the phrases that you might find bandied about your office environment, let's go powwow, which is sort of apocryphal because a powwow is actually a thing. And, you know, it, it is a gathering and that sort of thing. What you mean is you're going to meet. Use better language. I've also been on a journey of sort of moving beyond the language of violence. Pull the trigger, like that sort of thing. I say light the fire. You find your path instead of a pipeline. I have, you know, feelings about pipelines. Circle your wagon. That's colonialist language. That's that's implicitly implying that, you know, that you are gathering together in defense against indigenous people. Low man on the totem pole. Well, totem poles are actually sort of complicated things and the most important images are frequently on the bottom. So just challenging yourself every day to find better language, to think about the language that you're using and just be a better human being. Yeah through your language. And, and not only will you be more eloquent and, and, and describe things better, but you, you won't by accident offend people. I would say in the journey that I've been on to, to better understand how to be a better person, which I think is a really wonderful way to put that. I've felt myself or I've heard others, especially use um, the powwow reference. I've never thought about taking it a step forward and really eliminated that violent language, like you were saying, pull the trigger yeah. and yeah. right. With a scourge of gun violence. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a challenge. It's, and it's not just with regards to, you know, indigenous people, like many people been on a journey with regards to my understanding of gender and how people mm -hmm. identify with gender and that sort of thing. These are people I love and I, and I want them to feel good right. about themselves and that sort of thing. So one of the things that's becoming really prevalent, especially in our sort of live events culture, is doing some land acknowledgments prior to those. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that that's something that's becoming a little bit more standard. But as somebody who has written that land acknowledgment, has tried to write it from a place that feels honest and genuine. I've struggled to find those right words. And I'd love to know what advice you have for us living outside of the indigenous world to make those a more meaningful statement rather than a checkbox, yeah. which is what I fear it becomes at some point. It does for many organizations. The origin of the, the land acknowledgement, to the best of my understanding, and I've done a quite a bit of thinking and talking about that actually comes from Australia and Aboriginal brothers and sisters, women by the name of uh, Rhoda Roberts, who worked for the Sydney Opera. And the, the purpose there was as a matter of protocol, but also to sort of like bring awareness to. And in this country, it sort of serves a purpose to begin to erase invisibility. You may notice that on census and statistical reports and that sort of thing, Native people are eliminated. It goes well beyond that. There is a pervasive sense of invisibility. We're fighting against it and we're making some progress on that sort of thing. But invisibility is a huge challenge in Native and Indigenous communities, whether they be urban Native or tribal or, you know, like reservation or immigrant Native and that sort of thing. The land acknowledgement, uh, I encourage people to view it as sort of one element of sort of a greater strategy. And, and I also like to encourage people to view the, the work they do. It can, you can specialize. You don't have to take on the whole picture of injustice toward indigenous people. You can do amazing work as a performing arts venue or agent by shining the light on a section, say like the 
the queer and indigenous community, like two-spirit community, technology and science plus indigenous or incarcerated plus indigenous populations. So you don't have to tackle it all at once. Developing a land acknowledgement is... I mean, and I encourage people to actually generally keep it pretty simple, especially nowadays. I've witnessed many, many overwrought land acknowledgements where, you know, like they ask for a moment of silence. And I think that that sort of misses the purpose and that instead of having a moment of silence, they give a moment, you know, or two or an evening to for an indigenous person to tell their story. That's far more more important than than silencing people. It, it also is sort of worth mentioning that there is a difference between a welcome to land and a land acknowledgement. So a welcome to land is a moment where someone of the land, of the tribe whose land this is ancestrally, usually a culture bearer, um, welcomes you to their land and gives you, you know, the you know the permission to be there, the welcome to be there, the blessing to be there, um, connects with you as a visitor, as a welcome guest. Many people mistake that or misunderstand that as a land acknowledgement, and it's much different. And if you're going to do a welcome to land, you know, you have to engage with a culture bearer uh, or a native leader appropriately and usually compensate them um, because it is it is something that, that, that bears effort. I, again, just looking at this as hopefully a small part of an overall effort of helping to erase invisibility, helping to replace the voices, sort of the colonial voices about indigenous people with authentic stories by us and that sort of thing. I mean, many, many, many organizations have essentially a tokenistic land acknowledgement because that's all they do. I mean, it's just a matter of patience and convincing them that, that that's not enough. Yeah, I just want to thank you for reminding us that when you invite people to do something that they're either very passionate about or is very much a part of them, if you're asking them to do labor, you should compensate them. Yeah. And somebody who is a, a culture bearer, their labor is to do a welcome to the land, among many other things. And as we're building budgets and as we're talking about equity, those are things that we just have to build in um, in order to be more equitable organizations. So so thank you for reminding us about that. Is there anything that you see? I know so many people are writing statements, which is why I want to drill down on this a little bit more. Is there anything that we do that is harmful in those statements or that can be a next step further in being helpful? Yeah. I think a lot of times indifference or inaction starts from a fear of being harmful. Right. right. Yeah. I think you hit on it right there that that um, fear of, you know, messing up it really does inhibit a lot of people from taking the next step. Wherever I go, I try to give people license to, you know, make mistakes because I do it all the time. Being in that place, you know, and accepting that you don't know everything and that you're not the expert and that, you know, you have to have the humility to try something and fail before you get it right is 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 a place I think that we need to be more in the performing arts sector. Everyone's going to mess up. Like and if if you wait around for the opportunity like for the for the moment where things are perfect, it's just never going to come. You know, do your best. Um when you're connecting with culture bearers uh in your community and that sort of thing, view it as as the long path because many culture bearers, many leaders and that sort of thing have encountered sort of this tiresome phenomena where, you know, people come in, want to engage with them for just one event and then they disappear and that sort of yeah. thing. So 
encouraging people, of course, to to view this as an investment. Once you you make contact, try and do things the, the, the right way and go to them, buy them, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever. Have a meal with them, listen to them. As you're having a conversation with them, try to speak less and ask questions more. Take notes. Look for phrases and words that are repeated over and over again. Look for th to those things and ask more about them. Use that as guidance for how to build something for your organization in service to community. I bristle when people tell me that I sell things. The things that me and my, my touring partners do I cannot sell. My culture is not mine to sell. I can share it. And that's a distinction. I am not selling something. This is not, there's not a market economy around my culture. It, it's, it's like telling someone that they need to, you know, like buy some air to breathe. How do you sell a value? How do you sell a way of looking at the world? And how do you sell understanding? I, I don't sell, I don't buy, I share. I work in partnership with presenters in service to community, full stop. If I don't understand my the, the community I'm serving, if my partner doesn't, then it's our, our bad. We didn't do our homework. And I recognize there's a road to that. And this is where I make mistakes mm -hmm. because community and culture are complicated. You might end up sort of in a different cultural framework, in a different cultural bubble, when you walk from one side of a packed room to another. You know, you go from a culture around food and, and sort of talking about that and enjoying that and sharing that to one about sharing with someone and experiencing, you know, your collective emotion around elder care and that sort of thing. And these are, these are different cultural frameworks we have and they overlap and they share the same space all the time. Mm -hmm. As presenters and producers, we're on our journey of going beyond the land acknowledgement, bringing native culture into our programming in a more genuine way, intentionally, mm -hmm. when that copious number of people comes to you and you're having a conversation about which of the artists on your roster might best help that organization. What do you wish that that person knew in inviting somebody to their community? What kind of homework do you want them to have done first? What can we do to, to make inviting indigenous groups into our organization or into our communities a more safe and fulfilling? Uh, I've, I've been doing work with uh, Alethea Beetson, who is uh, Australian Aboriginal, and we've been the Performing Arts Global Exchange to the Mid-Atlantic. And she actually has taught me quite a bit. Um, there's a term in, in Australia, cultural safety and that sort of thing. And so doing the homework and doing the groundwork and that sort of thing and just reading everything that they've written about themselves and uh, as much about their community as possible uh, is a great first step. Most artists have written about themselves extensively, uh, you know, looking up the history of their community and that sort of thing and sort of trying to understand their context, but also just setting aside the time to have the conversations. I welcome people at every stage of their journey and that is my job. I'm honored to be that person for many people who are just starting. You've um, been that person. For it's my superpower as my uh, Lynette, my, my coworker, says that I'm oblivious to the many minor slights that other people might might take offense to. And so 
Um, <laughs> just takes patience. Being an educator takes patience and it takes love. You know, the unending belief that people at their hearts want to be good and they want to be better and they want to be better parents and they want to be better community members and they want to connect more. They want to live more fulfilling lives. That's sort of like the core of, of my beliefs. As I like find appreciation for the place that we're, where people are, I, I appreciate when people have spent the time in developing the relationships, have actually gone out and bought an indigenous culture, culture bearer leader in their community dinner, that, that they have something that that compensates uh, this culture bearer, you know, respectfully, that it's it's not a tokenistic or usury position, and that they have gone through the, the process of identifying whose land they are on, who's there right now in, in places along the East Coast where a displacement of the tribes have been near complete understanding that story. Who's there now, say perhaps if if like you have an academic plus indigenous community understanding their context and what they are interested in and that sort of thing. I mean, it, it just again gets back to doing your due diligence. I think the best sort of programmers of cultural spaces like theaters and that sort of thing uh, really delight in doing this sort of thing and that, that the opportunity to learn something new is truly that. It's, a, it's an opportunity to expand your world just a little bit. It's impossible to not hear the love and the passion that you have for this work as you're talking about it. I might regret this later, but I do kind of want to move a little bit more into just the business of how you get some of this work done. We've We've been talking for a few years now, and in that time, you've worked with several artists to produce new work, to get them out working more. Whenever you meet an artist, they're wanting to bring new work to you. What is something that excites you? I find the opportunity for this joy and discovery on a monthly basis because I'm always becoming aware of new folk that have not yet crossed paths with me. Getting to something I say all, all the time, over the last 10 years, there's been a, like a sizable groundswell of emerging artists, of artists that have been working in, you know, isolation or obscurity that, that are now getting attention and that sort of thing throughout the many nations that are this country and the many communities. I mean, that is absolutely a moment of celebration for me that, that we are now feeling empowered. We now have the connection or resources or knowledge collectively to start being more visible. And that, that are the allies that we are starting to form in the field are supportive of that. I, I'm in the process of considering many new projects, uh, uh, indigenous plus horror storytelling show that I, I'm working on concept right now and I'm hoping to get into premiere sometime in the next 12 months. I've recently become aware that there is a critical mass of Native American classical musicians and that we might be able to form a chamber orchestra. So when you that. say Native American classical, this might, this might be a very unwise question. Do you mean traditionally Western classical music or yeah. indigenous? So, so yeah, oh. anything. Yeah, any what what word should I use for that? Actually, well, so I mean, it, it can it can reside within both frames. Classical music, as in the music that were originally merged from Europe and that sort of thing, with you know the instruments you might think of with orchestras and that sort of thing, when played, when when composed, when this music is made, uh, played by native musicians, I call it native music. The, the cultural frame of the player, of the composer, is the frame of the music. And culture 
always has been fluid, regardless of the, you know, the color of your skin or your upbringing or any of these things. And you can have a Japanese American jazz musician and it can have a Japanese aesthetic, right? Mm -hmm. And it can be Japanese music. The same thing goes for Native American contemporary artists and that sort of thing is, is you get a unique lens. People bring their lens, their, their aesthetics, the melodies they heard growing up. And these things permute everything they do as artists. It might not be necessarily like apparent to someone who who didn't doesn't see you know isn't isn't schooled in this in their particular cultural framework but it is and they're experiencing something new regardless of whether or not they're necessarily aware of it and so it's a subtlety that that I think that we could all sort of benefit from that when we bring aesthetics we bring values, we bring these background things to art forms that are thought of in a different framework, it can transform not just our understanding of the culture of the person originating the music, but our understanding of the form as it has historically been. That is something of value to me. It's something that that enriches my life. So on your roster of artists and what the works that you're just talking about, the genres are so different. The artists are so unique. Your roster isn't one that's particularly thematic. Whenever I go to your website to look uh, to see if you've added new things, I have no idea what I'm going to find. So I'm wondering what it is that you look for when you add artists, because that's a huge commitment to it make is a huge to commitment. another and to another person to their art. And uh, usually I spend months, if not years, sort of looking at an artist's work before we decide to sort of uh, go into sort of, as you say, a business partnership and that sort of thing, because there is sort of an economic reciprocity there. And while my organization is is nonprofit, much of our support is through grants and the money that, that we do get from our, our modest tour commissions, which are usually 10 to 15%, depending upon whether or not we're fiscal sponsors of them or not, are usually reinvested in uh, new works and that sort of thing. And so I, I look for integrity. I look for clarity of voice. I look for connection with culture and values. I look for reliability because mm -hmm. that is absolutely essential, particularly on tour situations. I look for someone whose personality works well with uh, the personality of my team and that sort of thing, that if it seems like we'll have good communications and that sort of thing, because that's not necessarily, I mean, there's a, there's a fit for everyone in this world right. in terms of like your coworkers and that sort of thing. And that's what we're looking for is coworkers, people to work in partnership. I mean, the, the theme to my roster is indigenous, right? And that's, that's a broad umbrella, <laughs> a huge umbrella. And I do endeavor frequently to have variety from, you know, the, the, the sort of big genre headers like, you know, dance, theater, music. Um, I'm moving more and more into storytelling, which is, you know, manifested in stand-up comedy and, and my auntie show, storytelling live by matriarchs, and, and also the resources that my organization has. For instance, putting together that uh, all Native American chamber orchestra will be a heavy lift. I'm going to need perhaps $100,000 in the bank before I do that, because that's a lot of flights. That's a lot of time on the ground, sort of in development. And to make sure that people are well supported, they can support their family while they're doing this project, that's something that needs to be considered. And so if you're enc encumbering someone's time that could be used for teaching 
or, you know, the day job or whatever. You just really need to be mindful of that. Yeah, we're running out of time and I want to ask you to go a little bit deeper in all of those projects, um, but <laughs> I don't think that we can. Could you give us um, your website so that people can can go and find out? Of course. Indigenousperformance.org is our website. Um, just spelled out indigenousperformance.org. Awesome. Yeah. So if you could go back in time when you're starting out the LLC, what advice do you wish that you could give yourself? Well, it was hard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's really hard to see the arc that things will take. To this day, I, I fear that this is, you know, flash in the pan. This is just a moment that's happening and that, that the world or, you know, the performing arts world more specifically, will move on to a shinier nugget of, of information or something like that. Because there are so many sort of groups that have been marginalized over time and that are completely deserving of intention and, 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 and sort of awareness, immigrant populations. I, I find some amount of distress that, that women have in some circles stopped being marginalized, like viewed as marginalized populations, because last time I checked, uh, women, no matter the color of their skin, don't make a buck, can't get good health care, are discriminated against for becoming parents and, and that sort of thing. So there, there are so many causes in the world and so many of them are worthy, uh, you know, that the specter of invisibility is always sort of encroaching. If I had advice to give to my former self, uh, you know, would be to stick with it. But dedication has never been my problem. Poverty <laughs> certainly has been one in the past. And I, most people who have tried to make the arts a into a living and that sort of thing have certainly struggled with means and that sort of thing. Because if you're going to just take an economic lens, we're, we're not overcapitalized. And that's an issue too. I think that, that that's gradually improving. Every recession that we hit is a moment that I feel like we all hold our breath because what's going to stay, what's going to go away, what's going to be the focus after we emerge. But also like I worry about sort of like the encumbrance that the performing arts industry has with regards to all the buildings that we're maintaining. Mm -hmm. and that, that some buildings are extremely expensive and are almost completely inaccessible to people without financial means. Yeah. And that, that, you know, that, that's a transformation that needs to happen. And that like, where are we putting our resources? Where are we, where are we investing in that sort of thing? I, I, I probably could give myself some advice to make my life easier seven years ago, <laughs> but I can't think of it now. So this is, this is Danielle saying, to all of us that have experienced more privilege in ways that we don't even know in our lives, that we also need to keep going and making sure that we aren't moving on to, like you said, something shinier and not remaining to intentionally put marginalized voices on our stage. And it's something that we could talk for a long time about the balance and what we need to do, the education that we need to do around a lot of those priorities and, and truly see them as priorities both in the work that we're doing and where we're putting our funds. Yeah. It's it's something that to me, I want to, I want to use the limited space and time that I have to remind other peers to keep doing it. And also to remind myself, um, cause there, you're right. There are so many things to think about in this world. To push yourself in a sort of a framework, like you live around people who you perhaps have never thought of as your community in the space you have and to challenge yourself to, to try to understand that and to understand why that is. If you have content that, that activates if them, that you have content that aligns with them, if you have content that 
uplifts them. I think we in the performing arts start thinking about sort of like the community we have as just the community. It's it's rarely limited to that extent that there are, you know, within within the span of like a performing arts center and like a small city and, you know, say like 100,000 people and perhaps you serve 5,000 of them in the span of a given year with the exception of the Nutcracker, which just turns out all the parents and that sort of thing. With, you know, Nutcracker, let's just unpack that, but we can do better because their community centers say perhaps like uh, the Latinx community has a vibrant dance scene, but it's never seen the inside of your theater. Mm -hmm. Like those, those folks could perhaps be very, very interested in seeing people who have elevated that form or something like that. But it, it takes time and effort and that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I get it. Having an understaffed situation, not having enough money and that sort of thing. It's we're always tired. It's it's a challenge. But there's so much reward there. Seeing new people, making friends with them, connecting with them. It just it makes a stronger community. You build social capital and social capital is the thing that helps prevent tragedy that helps prevent disconnection, that helps prevent disassociation of making people the other and that sort of thing. There's a big, big picture here. Yeah. Being cultural workers, because art is culture or it is nothing. This is our responsibility. Well, thank you, Andre. Um, we're out of time today. Um, but you know, um, we'll be on the phone talking again soon. It's my, my honor. Sure. <laughs> I just want to keep bringing us joy, keep bringing us education, keep challenging us. Thank you for the work that you're doing. My pleasure. Danielle, I want to start off just by saying thank you for introducing us to Andre. I learned so much in this. You mentioned about someone that you knew mentioning powwow and I don't know if you were speaking about the time that I slipped that word when we were talking about a meeting or gathering together, but I, I admit that I used that word. But what I want to acknowledge is the fact that you had three options. You could have ignored it and been complacent. You could have called me out and made me feel embarrassed and publicly ashamed, but instead you called me in. And I really appreciated that because it allowed me to not only not be defensive about it, but to open up and listen and and like be aware that I'm using words that, that shouldn't be used in those situations. I just want to thank you. And I thank Andre because you mentioned how he's been a force in your life and learning in this journey. And I loved how he talked about the compassion he has and how he doesn't even notice these minor slights because he, he sees the best in, in all people and understanding that we're all in different parts of this journey together. I just want to acknowledge how gracious you were in that moment and how you helped me grow. I would say it really struck me, Danielle, when Andre said most of the best ideas in the world are not yours. Uh, that struck me in terms of the conversations we've had about imposter syndrome and collaboration and just the wider industry. That is something I'm going to write down on a sticky note and stick to my computer to make sure that I think about that every single day. One thing that I found really empowering about what he said is whether you're making mistakes in doing a land acknowledgement or not, it's about why you're doing it. And him giving that support to make a mistake or to not for it not to be perfect as long as the intent is right and it's not just checking a box. That's another thing that illuminated more for me as he was talking about it is to the erasure and invisibility of the native peoples in our lands is something that does need to be addressed and, and something that we do need to, to figure out more on. And, and so it, a lot of that was really empowering for me to, to try more. Yeah. I think it kind of, it, it 
for me, it gave me more reason to, because one of the reasons that we haven't done one here is, you know, sort of what he was talking about is that like tokenist land acknowledgement for us. Like every time that conversation comes up, it feels like, oh, we're just checking a box. Like we do that because that's what people do now. And for me, like I've always pushed back against that because I've never wanted to be somebody who's doing it just because or feel like I'm pandering to a certain audience. And to me, there wasn't like um, a fulfillment behind that. Like there wasn't something that we were working towards to be better at or, you know, actually making a difference on. It was just like, oh, it's we do that because that's what you put in welcome speeches now. But hearing his commentary on it and sort of that conversation, like it creates a larger conversation for our organization that could actually propel that to happen. The other thing that Andre said that I want to lift up, he said, culture is the frame that we carry through our lives and we inhabit many cultures at the same time. And here on the pod, we have talked extensively about bringing multiple identities into the workplace and how does that color our perception of the work and how does that uh, contribute to burnout and how we relate to each other and relate to our jobs relate to our personal lives. And I had never really thought of it in terms of culture um, and heard culture framed, (laughs) no pun intended, framed that way. It really makes me think about identity in a different way. That perspective in particular is something I'm going to carry forward with me in my work because we talk about a lens, you know, putting a lens on something or seeing something through a different lens and as a substitute for the word perspective. Um, But I like the word frame it gives us a chance to step back and actually take a look and take inventory of how we're existing in a space and all the pieces and parts of us. Um, So for me, like the culture that I inhabit, I inhabit white culture. Us white people, we don't necessarily think of ourselves as having a culture, but we do. There are specific characteristics that we bring into a professional setting or into our personal lives. That is something that we have to recognize and having a frame to understand that I think is incredibly important. A culture, another culture I inhabit, I inhabit mom culture. I inhabit like cultural norms and expectations around being a woman in society. So those are all parts of the cultural perspectives that I am bringing into the workplace, when I'm thinking about programming, when I'm thinking about how is this going to affect my community? How is this, what is message is this sending about the values that I hold as an individual and the values that my organization holds? And I want to spend more time thinking about that. What you're focusing on there is the importance of those words as a frame versus a lens, because a lens actually transforms and changes something where a frame highlights what's actually there and allows you to see directly what is actually there. And and the importance of those words and that language is incredibly key. I love that, Kate. Can't say all, but I know a lot of the uh, indigenous people did not have written language. And so, you know, a lot of their history was was verbally passed down from generation to generation through stories and other other means, which is just as valid. But then the colonialist people came in and they're the ones that wrote down things again from their lens and changing stories and putting it in their perspective. And that's what we're learning. And so I'm just curious if anybody has any resources that we can turn to that are from the indigenous people's lens and not from the colonialist lens. Like where are the learning materials that we can turn to today so we get a, so we can fill in those gaps of, of that erasure? I think, Brian, for some of that, I mean, obviously we might be able to reach out to some people to maybe link something in the show notes here. But from a presenter aspect, I mean, that's part of the reason that we need to be presenting some of this um, to really pass that down. 
Really what Andre said, I think lifts up a lot of what's really important for us as presenters to start looking at um, when it comes to what are we doing in our program to support EDIA programming, but especially in the native community. My heart kind of fell through the bottom of my body when he said at the end that he hopes that the arc of this isn't just a flash in the pan of people asking him for his work. And I think that's on all of us to keep going and to keep trying to learn. You know, we kind of talked in the beginning about how all of us are on a learning journey. We don't have a perfect answer to any of this and we're not supposed to. And, you know, it's good to be humble about it, but I think it's good to share where we do have a lack and where there is a space to build and to find people like Andre who so humbly share the information, but can also begin to set us up with people who can bring that information then to our communities. Cause it's really our responsibility that once we learn and we understand something to share that with the people that are around us and, and to help build that understanding and that culture that we want to have going forward. All right. Thanks for joining us for another episode of there is no business. Like uh, we'll see you next week. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to there's no business. Like our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. There's like going to be a thunderstorm here, and I think some weird shit's happening. Are you talking about mentally there's going to be a thunderstorm, <laughs> or are you just... <laughs> <laughs>Oh. Was that you, Danielle? Wow. I heard that one. Wow. Yeah. My mind doesn't do that whenever I have a thought. That's crazy. <laughs> Don't F with me. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like getting real outside. <laughs>